Well, if we get into Luke chapter 17, uh, the context of it is from dating back to chapter 15, there was this huge crowd that's been following Jesus all along. And among the crowd, Jesus is turning his attention back and forth to the Pharisees, which are the religionists. Those are the people that are the do-gooders. They look real religious, and they are real religious, but they're not Christian. They're not true followers of God. We know people like that. They're, They're good religionists. And Jesus will take his attention to these fine religionists and, and speak against them. And then he'll turn his attention to the disciples. He goes back and forth amongst those in the crowd. And so as he talks to these, these different groups, he's got lessons for each one. And yet, both of them are eavesdropping on the other. So they're, they're lessons for all of us. And what we see the last time, the, the last story of Luke 16 was about the rich man and Lazarus. This Lazarus, very poor man, was shown no mercy by this very wealthy man, uh, unnamed in the story. Rich man, he goes into Hades, which is indicative of hell, and Lazarus, because he was apparently a believer, uh, goes to the the side of Abraham, the bosom of Abraham, into paradise. And they see each other. The rich man regrets what he didn't do on earth. He didn't show mercy. He had all the opportunities to show mercy, especially to Lazarus, who sat at his gate every day, but he showed no mercy. Mercy is about you know, when we think about it in terms of God to us, we're, we're terrible sinners. You may think you're a good person, but God knows better. If you think you're a good person and you're good enough maybe to die and go to heaven, you really have a very twisted view of, of what sin is because you're not a good person. Oh, I, I know that we're, we, we like to call people good and we talk to each other. They're a good person. We like those people. They're good people. And, and there's a Certainly a place for that. You know, they're, they're law-abiding, good folk. They do their best. Okay, we're good people. But that in itself is not even anywhere near good enough to die and be able to go to heaven, to enter God's kingdom. That's why I say we're not good. We're not good enough. Our internal, all the voices of our, of our, in our head tell us, do this. Do that which is contrary to God's good and perfect will. We want to do that. We're prone to do that from the day we're born, from the day we're conceived. And so what we see with God's mercy is that God knows this about us and has offered us a peace treaty because we're all sinners. He gave us his son, Jesus of Nazareth, who we know is God in flesh. He gave us this and he said, if you will receive my son, I will forgive all your sins, mercifully washing all of those sins clean. Isn't that beautiful? That's the greatest news ever. It's called the gospel. If we will receive his son, that's all we have to do, that's it. Receive Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus as the Christ. You may not know everything about him, but you know that God gave Jesus to us to receive in order to be forgiven of our sins, and now our sins are washed away. God's mercy is upon us. And those of us who have experienced this salvation, there's a certain fruit that should, must, has to accompany us the mercy shown to us, what we show to others. If we receive that mercy of God, it's easy for us to show such mercy. So Jesus is telling his disciples in chapter 70, verse 1, he's telling his disciples it is inevitable. It's the only time this word is used in the Greek text of the Bible, inevitable. Um, it's, it's always going to be there. It's, it's just common knowledge that it's going to be there. What is inevitable? It's inevitable. It's stumbling blocks. Come, stumbling blocks, things that cause people to trip. It's one word in Greek, scandalos. 
That's where we get the word scandal, as you might imagine. It's inevitable that there be scandals. He's talking about people that cause us to sin. It's inevitable. And they are everywhere, aren't they? It's inevitable that there will be stumbling blocks, that people that lead us astray, some of them are in churches. They're called false teachers. They have huge churches, monumental churches. They look like the Pharisees on the outside. They look, they sound religious, but they are leading multiple thousands of people astray through false teachings. Others are in the music business. Music business, especially what we call today Christian music. Beware, my friends. Christian music ain't very Christian. And the people that that pass themselves off as Christian are not. Oh, their music might be moral, but they couldn't make it in the secular world. That's why they went to the Christian genre. They are not believers. They're pushing agendas. And naturally, especially if you're young, these people become our heroes. Oh, look at them sing on stage. They look so spiritual. They look like they're so in love with Jesus as they're, as they're singing. Aren't, aren't they just amazing? They're not. One of my favorite rock groups of the past is Styx. Styx, S-T-Y-X. I know it's the river in Hades that runs through Hades. And they sing a song called uh, The Grand Illusion. The Grand Illusion is about that very thing. He's saying, if you think that this is real, what happens on stage, welcome to the Grand Illusion it's nothing like that. A rock group telling us this is not reality. The people that look up, that are up there, that become our heroes are not heroes. Sometimes it's politicians we look to. We look at a politician and we think that person is going to save the day. And they're not followable people. None of them. I don't think any of them are. These are people that lead us into temptation. They lead us down dark paths. They make us think things that are wrong. They are stumbling blocks. They are inevitable. They are part of life, aren't they? The question will become, are you one of them? Are you one of them? Am I one of them? I'm a preacher. I have great influence just being a preacher. May not have the largest congregation in the world or people that listen to me, but there's enough. If there's just one, there's responsibility that goes with that. Are you it's inevitable that these people are here, that stumbling blocks will come, but whoa, the Greek word is ooah. It's like in one of those onomatopoeias. See, you know a Greek word now. Every time you get out of bed, you go ooah. Woe to him through whom they come. Jesus is saying they're out there. It's inevitable that they be there, but woe to those through whom they come. These are people that when they do get out of bed, they are leading people astray. Here's what Jesus says about them. It would be better for him... That is, the stumbling box, the scandalous. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A millstone. A millstone is a very heavy stone. It's used for crushing wheat. And so imagine you're on a ship and someone throws a millstone. Here, come here. Let me put this new metal around your neck. Wrap a rope with a millstone and chunk you into the sea. This was the frightening, most frightening, scariest scenario anyone could imagine. Especially because in ancient times, no one quite understood the sea. What's in the sea? What's at the bottom of the ocean? Today we know it a little better than, than they did back then. The sea was full of mystery. What are the creatures that are down there? These sea monsters, they're called. Uh, what's going on down there? What happens at the bottom of the sea? In fact, people uh, of the first century and ancients believed that if you were lost at sea, you could not be resurrected. 
You could not be resurrected. The Jews knew of a resurrection. We read about that in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the dead will come to life. But people weren't quite sure about those who were lost at sea, who died at the bottom of the sea. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 20, when I spoke two weeks ago about uh, Hades, where in the end, Hades is this place where the wicked dead, everyone who doesn't receive Christ, who doesn't believe God, when they die, they go into Hades, this holding cell. And then Revelation 20 says that this holding cell of Hades, which we learn in, in uh, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, is, is full of fire and heat and torture, torment. It's going to be thrown, this chasm of Hades is going to be thrown into the lake of fire which is eternal and even hotter. But it says in Revelation 20 is that the dead gave up theirs, Hades gave up theirs, and the sea gave up their dead. So it adds the sea as if to say in the book of Revelation, oh, those people are not lost. The sea gave up their dead too for judgment. But this is what Jesus is saying, saying, look, it is so bad to cause someone to stumble. It would be better for that person if he was thrown alive over the over a boat, off a boat, with a millstone, and he sinks to the bottom of the sea. So do you think from that it's a good thing to lead anyone astray? Folks, if you're not taking your children to church and telling them about Jesus, you're the stumbling block. It's not so much about what you do, although it is. It's also about what you don't do, what you fail to do. You teachers who are out there teaching the world Woke ideology are leading people astray. Why? Because I'm political? I'm not political at all. That's just anti-Bible. If the Bible teaches it, folks, we lovingly must promote it. If we ignore it, we're leading people astray. If we teach something contrary to it, we lead people astray. It would be better for us to be thrown off the boat with a millstone around our neck to the deepest part of the ocean and go down there alive. It would be better for us Better to die now in a horrible way than to continue to live and lead people astray. Whew. That's deep stuff. And right there at the end of the first part of verse 3, might fit better at the end of verse 2. These verse numbers are not inspired, as you probably know. Be on your guard. I think be on your guard is really completes uh, the, the thought there in verses 1 and 2. So be on your guard. Constantly Be vigilant. Be on your guard about what you say, who you talk to, what you say to them, how you lead people astray. We've been accused of this church for years as a cult. They're a cult. When I break out those snakes, you'll see how cultish we are. Cult. Well, what's a cult? If a cult is someone that that follows after another human being, calls them God, guilty. Jesus is our cult leader, right? So, yeah, okay, we're a cult. We're a good cult. We're a Christian cult. But no one's following me. You better not be. I'm not worth following. No one's following one of our elders or deacons or anyone else here. We follow Jesus Christ, our Lord. But to tell people that that that's a cult, that's a... Be careful. You're leading people astray to say that. Because typically a cult is... We think of Jim Jones back in the 70s. You know, or, or David Koresh back in the 90s, these cults. Be on your guard. Be on your guard for these stumbling blocks. If you're looking for a new church, be on your guard because I'm telling you, perhaps 80 to 90% of the schmoes out there that call themselves pastors are the scandalous. 
They are the stumbling blocks. They don't know the gospel. They don't preach the gospel. They don't want you opening your Bibles. They are going to lead you astray. A cult church is, usually has a hypnotic stage full of musical instruments with hypnotic music and the lights turned down low and some yahoo up there with his or her eyes closed and they're just trying to fly. Hands in the air like they don't even care and they're just out in la-la land, supposed to lead songs, but they're just so enraptured in it. Beware, folks, because all that's called worship. No, it ain't. That's not worship. That's hypnotic brainwashing. Open the word of God, hear what the prophet said, you worshiped. Obey it, live it. Jesus says, be on your guard for them. And then he says this, if your brother sins, you ever had a brother? Brother here, it's a brother in Christ. Not your, your blood brother, although that, that would fit, perhaps, or blood sister. But if your brother, if someone in the faith sins, and that happens... Because we as Christians, after we come to know Jesus, have our sins washed away. Here's the strange thing. If you know, we continue to sin even after we're saved. Young Christians have come to me in the past and said, Lance, there's no way I can be saved. I keep sinning. Oh, you're saved. (laughs) You're going to keep sinning. And God factored all that into your salvation when he saved you. Isn't that great? Knew everything we were going to do. It was all factored into the equation. I know what you're going to do, Lance. I know all that. I know things you don't know, Lance, that you're going to do. My blood still washed those away through your faith, through the faith that I put in you to have. You are mine. So if your brother sins, and the implication here is not just a sin. It's not a brother that's out there sinning, committing adultery, stealing money, and cheating on his taxes or whatever it might be. The implication here is, if we looked at the Matthew parallel in Matthew 18, is someone who sins against you. So have you ever had a brother in Christ? Maybe it's your spouse. It could be. Maybe... They've cheated on you. Maybe they've, they've done something so horrible, but it's a brother in Christ who sins against you, who hurts you. If it happens, if your brother sins, take him out, beat him over the head with a two-by-four. <laughs> no, that's not what it says. But in some instances, it would be better, it would be easier to beat them over the head with a two-by-four than to do what Jesus says, rebuke him. Rebuke him. Now, that, that, that's a difficult little phrase there because most people don't like to rebuke anyone and those who do like to rebuke ought not be rebuking. Rebuke him. That is, you have sinned against me. Don't do that. Don't talk to me that way. Don't hit me. Don't take my money. Don't tell me one thing and do another thing. That hurt. Don't do that. I'm telling you, the rebuke is, I'm telling you, let me bring this to light for you. If you're married, your spouse has told you, probably very lovingly from time to time, hey, you do this, you say that, I wish you wouldn't do that. The first thing my wife told me, first thing, first week of marriage is I came home from work and take my pants off, throw them on the the bed, put my shorts on, relax. I know, I'm a terrible, horrible sinner, I know. But she said, look, if you wouldn't do that, that would be great. Do what? Put your pants on, the, on the, the bed. Can I put them on the floor? The, the bed. I'm going to put them up later. Yeah, if you would just not do that. Okay. I didn't do it anymore. We've had a wonderful, happy marriage ever since. <laughs> Fixed everything. <laughs> now, was, was, her, was she pointing her finger at me? Don't you do that? No. 
If you wouldn't do that, that'd be great. So rebuke doesn't have to be this angry, don't you ever do that again. It's just a simple, here's what you've done to me, you've hurt me, don't do that. Now it is a sin. It's not just something, it's not pants on the bed. That's, that's really, it's a bad example. It's about actually sinning against another human being. It, maybe it's somebody, look, I know that you tell me you love me, but you go out and you tell other people things that, that you talk behind my back, and that's wrong. You can't do that. Or when we get on the, the highway, you're a good man, but you get, on the, you get in a car, you become demonic. You know people like this? They're complete, they're not Christians at all. They're not even human. They get in the car, and they're cursing at everybody, and I wish you wouldn't do that. That's a sin, especially with our kids in the backseat watching. Could be something like that. I know, most of you are very offended, and you'll never come back now, because I really hit you between the eyes on that one. Be on, your, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Note this, if he repents, forgive him. It doesn't say wait a week, wait a year before you rebuke him. It doesn't say go talk to other people first. Make sure you note that. It doesn't say go talk to other people first. I, as a pastor, have many, many people in my rearview mirror, the wake of my 23-year ministry at this church, where people have been hurt, hurt by me. Not all are, are, are sinful hurt. A lot of them are just people with very sensitive feelings. That happens. I understand. I am actually a sensitive person myself. Believe it or not, I am. That's why this message today is difficult for me because it's about forgiveness and I'm sensitive enough to where I struggle with it. But there's people, I've even met one guy, actually a handful of people have told me, one guy came here, he said, I came here on fire with the Holy Spirit and you poured a bucket of water on me. I did? Yeah, and he said, because you like to, and he did this, preach everybody that they're sinners. Well, they are. In need of Christ. I mean, that's, that's what I follow with. I'm not just telling people they're sinners. Christ, that's the good news for being a sinner. I've had others. Uh, I used to teach now at the College of Biblical Studies for five or six years, and a handful of them. I, I've seen some converts. One lady was going to Joel Osteen's church, and, and her words and her gesture, that's my pastor. Don't you talk bad about him. And I said, well, okay. I won't talk bad about him, but here's a list of questions. Go try to set up an interview with Pastor Osteen and see if he'll answer these questions. He wouldn't even set up an interview. And when she submitted her questions, they asked her not to try again. She said, I get it now. I've had others that have said, uh, Lance, I went into that college a Christian, and I came out because of you. I'm never going back to church again. Okay? Those are things I'm not sorry for, because I didn't do anything but preach the Bible. And I didn't do it in an angry way. Here's what it says. This is my job. There are others, however, whom I have spoken harshly to. I have been rebuked by a brother in the past who was an elder at our church, and he said, Lance, you are ungentle and at, some, and at times unkind. Yes, I am. I have been. It is, unfortunately, the bent of my heart. As you can, you could, anyone can see me, hear me for the first five minutes preach. You know that's, that's kind of my personality. I hear myself. I understand it because I've heard very kind and gentle people. Um, it was great advice, and he was spot on especially with the people he told me I needed to deal with. And I did. I went and I dealt with some of them, not all of them, because I wasn't sorry for some of them. Some of them needed the confrontation that I gave them. I was rebuking them. There were others that I needed to, and and he was right. And I've thought about it through the years. As an elder, um, I am supposed to be kind and gentle, and that's supposed to flow from me, and I struggle with that. So it was a great rebuke, and one I have taken to heart, and I think, I don't want to say rectified, but continually work on and think about 
rebuke. If he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. Not a process. It's just a, I forgive you. I forgive you. Done. What you did, I'm done with. That's all I needed. You repented. And to repent means, uh, I've rebuked you for doing this. We'll use me as an example. You were ungentle with these people. You spoke harshly to these people. You hurt them. I come back and I say, you're right. I'm sorry. I'll go to them and ask for their forgiveness and try to do better. Should be done, right? Over. That's what it says. Forgive. Even more difficult. And if he sins against you, there it is, the against you, seven times a day. You could imagine this is your spouse, a co-worker, a neighbor. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him every time. Forgive. Forgive. Hey, Lance, I spoke ill of you today. I forgive you. Hour later, hey, Lance, I had the opportunity to speak nicely of you and I spoke ill of you again. Will you forgive me? Forgive it. Third time. What do you think I'm I'm saying by the fourth time? Dude, get out of my sight, man. You are clearly not sincere. Jesus says, keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Forgiving means to cast out, just wash away, done. Escape, done with it. Folks, listen to me when I say this, because it's often added with forgiveness today. We tell people to forgive and what? Jesus never says to forget. We know it's impossible to forget. If you were abused sexually, physically, you'll never forget that. Those, that's in your head forever. You'll have to deal with those, with that. But we are never told to forget. We are told to forgive. And I can tell you from experience, sometimes you forgive something in one moment, and you've got to forgive it again this next moment. It's not just repenting every moment you've done it. It's forgiving. You'll remember things. You'll have a good day, and you go, I think I'm done with that. I think I really have forgiven. Something happens, and you go, ooh, clearly I've not. I need to do that again. Forgive happens over and over. Let's look at the parallel passage over in Matthew, if you would. Go over to the left. If we're in Luke, you'll just bypass Mark, and then you'll be in, in Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 18. Briefly, it's a, it's a parallel, as I said. Uh, it's not the same context. Jesus would have spoken this on many occasions um, about forgiving. Matthew records one instance. Luke records another instance. Certainly, Jesus didn't talk about forgiveness just one time. And so when you get to uh, Matthew eighteen seven, you see that Jesus is in the same context. I should say chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 6. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. By, by the way, little ones is not little children. It's God's people. Little ones means his followers. Could be an old, crusty, 90-year-old person. Little one. That's a, a child of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, there it is, better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. We just read that in Luke. So we know the context is right. And then Jesus says, look, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to you to enter life, eternal life crippled than lame. If you have two hands, two feet, if your hand causes you to, 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 to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Well, here's the really good news, folks. Jesus doesn't mean this literally. Because even if you chopped all of your appendages off, plucked your eyes out and poked your ears out, and whatever it might, might be, you are still 
plagued with what? Sin. You're still going to sin. You might not be able to go put it to use. You're still going to sin. So it's not the appendages that sin. Sin begins right here, doesn't it? That's why I tell us we are all wretched sinners. It might not manifest itself in our arms and legs and eyes, but it's always in the mind. It's always there. That is always our problem. It always has been our problem, and it's still our problem after we come to know Christ. The good news is is that we've been forgiven of that, but we still struggle with it. So Matthew adds that in his context. In verse 10, Matthew 18, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, that is one of his followers. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Their angels in heaven. Again, this is not little babies. You hover over a baby and you go, oh, their angels in heaven are hovering over them. Um, this is talking about Jesus' people. We have angels in heaven that are, what, continually seeing the face of God the Father. What do you think, verse 12? If a man has a hundred sheep, and he uses this illustration of a hundred sheep differently than Luke does. Luke speaks of it as, as a lost person. Go out finding the lost. This one has to do with a, a believer who's gone astray. And when a believer goes astray, it's a believer who sinned either against you or against God. We know people like this, right? Someone who's doing something they ought not be doing. Looking at things they ought not be looking at. What do we do with such a people? Do we just sit back and pray for them? Praying is a powerful thing. But Jesus gives us a step-by-step way to deal with it in Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Again, don't go have a meeting with the elders. Don't go talk to other people over the course of three weeks. Talk behind this person's back. If that person sins either against you or they're living in sin, call them up. Hey, can we talk in private, the two of you? You telling that person, not the things that he or she is doing that irks you, but about their sin. When I say not the things that irk you, I'm not talking about, okay, well, you know, I notice you, you like to speed like two, minute, two miles per hour over the speed limit. You set your, your, your uh, any, anyone do that? You know, good Christians set it about two or four miles per hour over the speed limit. You know, kind of keeps it under. You know, that's what good Christians are able to do. It, that's not it. You are in sin speeding all the time. You set it four miles an hour over the speed limit, people are blowing by you. You're a bigger problem on the road than elsewhere. But you didn't hear that from your preacher. (laughs) It's not talking about, you know what, in our house we've decided that TVs are wrong. We don't have TVs in our house. You have TVs in your house. I want to confront you about that. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about your preacher. Is Lance, I don't really like the way you preach. You say this and you do that. Unless I'm in sin, you're not the preacher. Stay in your road. Stay in your your lane, right? If I come into your house and I say, I don't really like the way you do this. that, That doesn't mean you're in sin, might not mean you're doing things the way I would want you to do it, or you're not, I'm not doing the way things that, vice versa. Be careful what you confront and what you, what you rebuke. This is talking about someone who's truly in sin. If they're in sin, go to him in private. Note that. If he listens to you in verse 15, you've won your brother. Case closed. The brother says, you're right. I was wrong. Thank you for bringing it to light. You're a real friend. Repentant, it's over. But if he doesn't, I didn't listen to you, verse 16, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 19, I believe. So the the person who's sinning didn't listen. Uh, Maybe they're continuing to sin against you. I don't care what you say. Let's say you confront a preacher and a preacher is being too harsh. Lance, you're being too harsh with the people. I don't care what you say. I'll say what I want to say and do what I want to do. I'm the preacher, you sit back and stay in your lane. What if that was the attitude? 
Well, that means you need to bring two or three others and say, Lance, you're a shepherd of the sheep. If we're here to help you and we love you, you should listen to us. You're going to, to blow up. People are leaving because you're a jerk. I've been told that. And to some extent, it was true. So if they don't listen to the one, take two or three others with you. Again, it's not a big meaning. It's in private. If he listens, problem solved. I've done that one before. A person in our church was having an extramarital affair. Talked to her in private. She didn't like that. Found a place where she was having breakfast one day. I took two other women with me. We confronted her there. She didn't like it. And before we could even get to the third step, she was gone. So there's verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, so you've gone to him privately, you've taken two or three others. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Yeah. There could be a time on a Sunday morning where I might come in and have to say, okay, so-and-so. Tim, you caught my eye. I'm getting you. Tim will not quit speeding. I mean, he's an airplane pilot, so I mean, he gets to speed. Tim will not stop doing this. That, 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 it would be that embarrassing and humiliating for Tim and his family. Tim will not repent. The whole church is to know it. We are all a family because how Tim behaves, how I behave, is reflective of all of us. And worse, it's reflective on Christ. How many times do people say, I'm not going to church, you're a bunch of hypocrites. That person in your church acts like this, acts like that. So we have to bring it to the, to the church as a whole. If he refuses to listen to the two or three others, take it to the church. Let him be to you. If he doesn't listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Did he snub them? Did he call them foul names? No, he loved them, didn't he? So don't for a moment think that, that casting someone out, if it was our brother Tim, cast him out, everybody being mean to Tim. Look, the, the, the admonition here is treat Tim like he's an unbeliever. In other words, give Tim the gospel. Pray for him like he doesn't know Christ. That's, that's what you do. Believe me, it's ugly. It's not fun. And yet, this is what we're supposed to do. Because if you don't rebuke people who have sinned against you, what happens? You become more and more cold towards them. You, you shun them. I don't want to talk to them. Don't bring them around. I know what they said about me behind my back. I know what they did. Just get them away from me. We become bitter. We, we, we live in this prison of bitterness. They hurt me. They did this. They said that. Deal with it. And if they repent, you've been restored. They've been restored. And that's the goal. It's not about rebuking and shaking your finger at somebody. It's about restoring a person who's sinning. And that's a wonderful accomplishment when it's done. And even if it's not done, if it's been done right, then we have nothing to be ashamed of. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be your pastor. And then Jesus gives this example because Peter asked him in 1821, Matthew 18, 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him, up to seven times. By the way, the rabbis, it's, uh, we, we can read in, in their ancient literature, um, had uh, practiced mercy on three occasions. Uh, if someone sins against you, you forgive them three times, and then that's done. Because that's a strikeout. 
long before baseball was invented, strike out for three. So apparently, Peter just doubled it and added one. Or he could just be using seven as this wonderful number. Should I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, which as you know is 490. But does Jesus mean count 490 times? No. He simply means continue to forgive them no matter how many times they sin against you. Now for some of you, that is so otherworldly. You could never, you will never. There is someone that you came to church with today, at least in your mind, that you are never going to forgive. Someone who hurt you. Maybe it was someone who abused you in some way when you were a child. You will never forget them. And you have said things like, I hope they rot in the hottest part of hell. That's understandable, but it's a sin. Even those people are to be forgiven. Even if they don't ask for repentance or ask for your forgiveness. Even if they never repent. Now, mind you, what we read in Luke was Jesus saying, if they sin against you seven times, up to seven times, and they repent seven times in a day, then you forgive them. So it implies, okay, a person has to repent before they can be forgiven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Oh, it doesn't say that in Matthew. But let's think about it. Think about the equation. You've got someone who has hurt you deeply. And you are waiting for their apology. And until you get their apology, you will not let it go. You're going to live in your anger, hatred, and bitterness. And even when they do ask for forgiveness, you're probably going to nurture it a little bit longer. Jesus said when they repent, forgive them. Matthew's gospel doesn't say repent. So what do you do if they never ask for forgiveness? What do you do? Hold on to it? Do we have permission in Luke 17? Well, they didn't, they didn't repent. So I don't have to forgive. Folks, you forgive one way or the other. If they don't repent, the relationship is never restored. But that's not your fault. That's on them. Someone, a spouse, cheats on another spouse. It's very painful. I don't know it by experience. I know it through counseling. I have had friends that I love that betrayed me horribly. I've never felt so betrayed. I've never felt so hurt. It caught me off guard. I didn't, I didn't get it. I never thought possible that could happen. And I know the pain of what it means to be betrayed. What did I do? What did I say? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but am I that bad? Maybe I am that bad, but does that beget that kind of feeling? I've had people show, tell me people I trusted. One man looked me in the eye and he said, don't worry, Lance, I got your back. By the way, other than my buddy Renee who says it right, I, I don't like that phrase because that guy apparently didn't know what that meant. I got your back. To me, that means, don't worry, when everyone else is trashing you, I'll take up for you. Or in, in battle, you know, if, you're, if your back is against the enemy, someone else is going to cover you. Well, this guy apparently having my back meant, don't worry, Lance, as soon as you turn your back, I'm throwing seven knives into it. Okay? I learned that too. And that's kind of what I've struggled with for years to get past. I get it. I know the pain, and I'm not past it per se. So what do I do? Forgive. Have any of the people that hurt me asked for forgiveness? Not a one. And the times I've reached out to them, I've been rebuffed. One guy said, I don't even believe you. <laughs> I said, look, I own what I did. I, let's, let's bury this hatchet. I am so sorry. No, I don't believe you. Okay, that's not on me. That's on him. Let, let that be. Still hurt. So what do you do when the people are not sorry who hurt you, and they're out there still trashing you what's the answer you forgive them 
You forgive them. Folks, this is what Jesus did. Follow me. When Jesus died on that cross, forgiveness was available. Forgiveness became available through his death. His death, his blood. Forgiveness became available to anyone who reaches for it. For those of us who have come to Jesus and taken that forgiveness, it's like Jesus saying, come to me, I got a great gift for you. Come on over to my house, I want to give you this gift. It's, it's yours, come get it, here. And those of us who receive Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God, we have that gift given to us. It's called forgiveness. It's there for anyone who wants to come to Jesus and get it, but most people are not going to go get it, but it's already there. It's there with him. He possesses the forgiveness. You and I are to be the same way. The forgiveness I have is here. It's with me. I want to give it to you. If you don't want it, then you'll not get it. We'll never be restored. We'll always be enemies. But I have done my part. I forgive. Have you ever seen people who uh, they go to the the execution of a death row inmate because uh, perhaps the, the... the criminal killed their child or someone they love, and they're going to go, they're going to see that that person dies. I say dies because it's a passion of hatred. And they go and they sit in that room and they watch the, execution, they watch the man be executed, or the woman. Um, back in the 90s, Carla Faye Tucker uh, was a woman who had been uh, put on death row for uh, butchering another human being, taking a pickaxe. Uh, and she was on death row. While on death row, she came to know Christ. And uh, there was a, a great movement to try to get Carla Faye off of death row so that she wouldn't have to die. She was a completely different woman, kind of like the Manson murders. They were completely different people after 30 years in, in prison. But Carla Faye Tucker died. Uh, and, and what was amazing to me was the people in the churches that were going, no, no, she deserves to die for what she did. Yes, we all do. We all deserve to die. If we haven't murdered in reality, we've murdered up here quite frequently. I'm a mass murderer in my mind. You laugh, but so are you. And you think, Where, where's the mercy? Where, you've been forgiven. Why shouldn't she be forgiven? The forgiveness must be with you. And as we looked at with the prodigal son, remember when the prodigal son came back to his dad and he had this great speech all ready to tell dad, Dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve anything. Please just hire me as a hired servant. He didn't even get this spiel out before his dad said, forgiven, done. Don't ever let anybody finish their sentence when they're trying to confess. Don't let them finish. Cut them off. Give them the hand. Speak to the hand. <laughs> Forgiveness is already here, man. You don't have to go back through that. Of course, there are some that will go, uh-huh, okay. And what about this over here now? You said this, you did this. You're sorry for that too? Okay, okay. Well, let me think about it. We'll see if you're contrite enough. Folks, if you're that person, you know nothing of the blood of Jesus. Don't even let them finish their confession. Forgive. Because it's here, it's a gift. Boom. Forgive it. Now, I'm going to confess to you what I have had trouble with in forgiving it's me. And so the preacher in me, I think everybody should be their own preacher. I really do. You're your best preacher. Constantly preaching to yourself. 
Take your sinful self and your moaning and complaining. Take your preacher self and say, why don't you just hush? Believe the gospel. Quit your complaining. You tell that to yourself so that no one else has to. The preacher in me has told me, Lance, just get over yourself. I believe that the lingering problems I've had with forgiveness are my need and my sensitivity for that just to be, I'm sorry, Lance. I don't, I hate that I have to confess that to you. Lance, get over yourself. You think too highly of yourself that you think you need an apology. You think too highly of yourself that you think these people have to do anything. Sure, if you want the thing to be restored, the relationship to be restored, yes, they need to do that. But until that time, or if it never comes, get over yourself. That's what I keep telling myself. It sounds harsh, and that's probably why I was accused of harshness in the past, because I say things like that to myself. Get over yourself, Lance. Stop your groveling. Stop, stop. I have bitter feelings towards some people, some more than others, at sometimes more at more times than others. And my preaching is, Lance, just shut up. Get over yourself. You're a sinner too. You've been saved by God's grace. Just take the grace that you know happened at the cross and give it to them. Done. Get over you. That's what we have to do. Get over us. Well, you hurt my feelings. And my feelings need to... Do we hear ourselves? There's a movie out now. I heard it. I saw it. It's called... (laughs) I haven't seen it, nor will I. But the title of the movie is You Hurt My Feelings. I thought, oh my. The sequel is Get Over Yourself. (laughs) You hurt my feelings, folks? Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Yeah, it happens, I know. You hurt my feelings. What is that? People hurt other people's feelings probably because they needed to. Children get their feelings hurt because they need to be rebuked. Preachers get their feelings hurt because we think we know everything. We deal with that. We certainly come across like we do. And some call us arrogant and others say, well, that's a great person, great guy. No, no, we're still just wretched human beings trying to preach God's word. And I'm trying to tell you today my own struggle with this difficult passage, forgiveness. As we go into the Lord's Supper today, the last few moments we have here, I want to read to you a passage that that Jesus says in, in Mark 11. He says this, just listen to me. Mark eleven twenty four. 24, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, which is to say, and believing that God grants all things to you, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you for your transgressions. As we partake of the supper, we remember the Lord's death. His death was for our forgiveness. If you partake of the cup and the bread, you are partaking of a remembrance of his death and what it was for. You're not getting forgiveness, by the way. If you partake of it, you're not receiving forgiveness. This is a Protestant church. That's false teaching. That's a heresy to think that. We are remembering, recalling what Jesus did, his broken body, his shed blood, We remember that forgiveness and we look forward to his second coming when we have a full meal like that in his presence. But it's about forgiveness. During the midst of it, there's a time in which while we pass the elements out, there's silence in there. Just just a music playing in the background. Use that time. 
You don't have to leave and go find someone that you hold a grudge against. Find them right here. Find them in your head and forgive them. No matter what they've done to you. No matter what they've done to you. No matter how much money they owe you. No matter how much pain they've caused you through the years. Stop playing the victim card. And forgive. Let it go. And your prayer is going to be accompanied by, Lord, I know I'm supposed to pray this. I can't do it. And that's where God loves to bring us, doesn't he? To the end of our rope of the things we cannot do. Because as Paul says, when we are weak, God is mighty. And in forgiveness, God has to be mighty. He was mighty on that cross. And he's mighty in our souls to forgive us and to cause us to forgive those who have hurt us. So my deacons, deacons of Harvest Bible Church, and those of you who help pass the elements out, if you would, begin making your way to the elements. If you're a member, if you're not a member of Harvest Bible Church, you can partake of the supper with us. Uh, I only ask, in fact, um, demand as, insofar as I am, have the power to do so, that you be a professed believer in Christ uh, to partake of the supper with us. Uh, it is not for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever partaking it, you actually, according to the Apostle Paul, take judgment upon yourself to partake in this, in this rite, R-I-T-E rite, in this ordinance. Um, so if you are in Christ, partake with us. If you're a child and you're not sitting with your parents, we will not give you the elements. Guys, do not pass it to children unless they're with their parents. Uh, it is for those if parents here. It's up to you. Your call for your kids. But this is a an element, an ordinance for those who have professed faith in Christ and have been baptized. Without those two, it is not a supper for you. For the rest, take this time to reflect on what Christ has done. Make it that your first, your first thought. What Christ has done on that cross, who gave His perfect life for us to shed His blood to die in our place. To forgive us everything we've done and will do as a precursor to how simple it will be for you to forgive all those who have hurt you as a result. Gentlemen. The, um, it's not real. You look at this and you go, wow. Don't. It just has a piece of unleavened bread in it and a little vial of juice. I know it's not real formal. But it doesn't matter if it's a huge meal, the way the, the early church used to eat it in their agape feast, or if it's this. It's a reminder. It's what it is. The unleavened portion of the bread is uh, the leaven signifies sin. This unleavened piece of, of wafer signifies the sinless body of our Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, they had to bring animal sacrifices for sin. And it had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be, couldn't be a three-legged one. couldn't be one that, that uh, was sick, that you didn't want from your flock. It had to be the best. And Jesus, even John the Baptist, called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that beautiful? He is the Lamb, and it's His body. It was given, his blood that was shed. And so it doesn't matter what it looks like, how informal it might look. It matters what it means. And so as we look at this today, uh, look at what the Apostle Paul said. He says, I'm skipping to 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, it's what I said right before the music started, is therefore whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Well, we're guilty of Jesus having died. He died for us, for our sins, because of our sins, but we're not guilty of it. And yet, if you take it in an unworthy way, if you partake of this thinking that some kind of the work that you do will bring you into great standing with God, you partake of it in an an unworthy way and show yourself guilty of the death of Christ. Paul says a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. One of the judgments to judge rightly today is whether or not we have forgiven those who have hurt us, sinned against us. They won't say they're sorry. They won't repent. But the gift of forgiveness, is it with you to be given? Does it reside with you? When they come and they want to tell your sto- their story about, their, about how sorry they are, are you just going to, done, here's forgiveness. I already gave it to you. It's here. Or not, as we examine ourselves. So insofar as we have examined ourselves, take that first layer. It's a a layer on top that that gets to the wafer before you get to the juice. And that juice part, if you yank that open, it's going to spew all over your white dress. Did anyone wear a white dress? Oh, yes, she did. My wife, by the way. The Apostle Paul says this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this. Eat this bread in remembrance of the death of our Lord on that cross. Why did he die? He died to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We remember that right here. Paul continues in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant of the law, the new covenant. Shed and inaugurated by his blood, by his death. This cup, this cup, we have red juice in it. It could be wine, it could be grape juice. It's significant of blood which is not the blood that Jesus' blood didn't save us. Blood is a a figure of speech for his death. His body was shed. His blood was shed. In the same way, Jesus took that cup, held it up. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Note that in remembrance of me. So we remember, again, the death of Christ. And in the death of Christ... The last thing he said, his last words, before he willingly gave up his spirit. He knew he was going to die. Once payment had been paid, he said, the Greek word is tetelestai. And he yelled it, screamed it, the cry of victory, tetelestai. It means it is finished. Literally, it means paid in full. My death just paid all of your sins in full. My death... In paying for your sins, I have the receipt. 
with me. Come to me. I'll give you your receipt. It says, paid in full. Don't come to me. You'll never be forgiven, Jesus is saying. We remembered what Jesus did today to forgive us. We go forth to forgive others. And that little wafer and juice is just an appetizer for what's coming. Because when Jesus returns, that supper also looks forward to that wonderful supper we will have when he returns, that wedding feast. Because that's what Jesus told his disciples the night he died. This is my blood. This is my body. And he says, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine. I'll not drink this stuff again. I will not do this again until I do it in my Father's kingdom. In other words, when he returns, there's going to be a feast. DeGarmo and Keyes sing this great song called Family Reunion. There's going to be a family reunion. Go find that song and crank it up on your car stereo. Can you do that today? Crank it up. Put it on YouTube. Family Reunion by DeGarmo and Keyes. I know they're from the 80s. There's going to be a family reunion when we see the Lord. The family reunion. That wonderful meal together. I get a little emotional I think about it. I get a lot emotional. Because I hope it's today. I do. I hope it's today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. You became a man to live our lives and die our death so that you could grant the forgiveness. You could pay the penalty for our sins. You could grant it if you wanted it. Just say, oh, everyone's forgiven. But no, you paid the penalty for it. Sealed the deal. Gave us assurance. That price has been paid. If there be one among us today that doesn't get that, may they leave here having gotten it. May they leave here knowing that you became a man. That you lived the perfect life and died our death so that we wouldn't have to. To pay the price for our sins. May this ordinance that we've observed cause us to remember your death and look forward with great longing to that amazing meal, that incredible, awesome meal that awaits in your presence at your coming. Come, Lord Jesus, send thy kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. May God bless you, my friends, as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 